Well, hello, Arbor. How are we? Doing well. So this is what fall is like, huh? Yeah. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Arbor. I've lived here for just a few months now, and uh, it just kind of comes thundering in like a lion. Last week, it's like 82 degrees and the world's on fire, and now it's like 40, right? Like, is that how it works? Um, I was so excited, though, to wake up on Friday. Didn't it feel so good to wake up on Friday and go outside and actually breathe in fresh air? <gasps> it felt so good to know all those trees weren't getting burnt up. And we aren't doing um, uh, too much better here at Arbor with the trees. We keep passing out little pieces of dead trees to you guys. Uh, but I just wanted to remind you that as we are going through Philippians, we don't want to just be touching on Philippians on Sundays, but we want to be reading through it throughout the week. That's what these bookmarks are. And then today, um, we killed some more trees and passed out these um, scripture memory cards. And we also want to be memorizing scripture and fixing our minds on scripture. And for this week, uh, we will be memorizing Philippians uh, 4. Well, actually, that reference is wrong on this card. This is uh, Philippians 2. Uh, and so that's the, that's the verse that we're going to be memorizing this week. And on the back, if you look on the back of this uh, scripture memory card, it says, don't say that out loud three times fast, okay? Actually, what that is, that's the first letter of every word on the other side to help us memorize scripture. So that's what we're going to be going after um, this week. Uh, this, jo- this fall, uh, we are going after joy, deep, authentic, real, resilient joy. Uh, after a couple of years of hardship and languishing, we want to pursue what God has on offer for us, and we're doing that by going into Paul's letter to the Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those right now and get those out. We are going to be in Philippians 2, Philippians chapter 2 today, and we are in this letter because Paul embodies this resilient joy. The joy that Paul has is unfazed, it is untouched by his circumstances because Paul's joy is rooted in something deeper than his circumstances. And what is that joy rooted in? Well, how are we defining joy uh, throughout this series? We are defining joy as a supernatural delight in the presence, the promises, and the people of God. That is how we are defining it, a supernatural delight in the people, promises, and presence of God. And each and every week, what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be looking at the passage that's in front of us, and we're gonna be asking ourselves two simple questions. In the midst of Paul's circumstances, while he's suffering in prison, how in the world can Paul have this deep, resilient joy? And then once we have a handle on that, how then can we get some of that joy for ourselves? Does that sound good? If we keep going with this plan, week four of Philippians. Uh, Loved last week, uh, Scott, one of our elders, taught through the end of Philippians chapter one. I think one of the most important things for us to take away from that section of Philippians is this idea that our pursuit of joy is a journey, okay? Our pursuit of joy is a journey. You know, as we go throughout Philippians, uh, what you'll notice is that there are so many famous biblical, like, sayings in the book of Philippians. And last week, we encountered one of those big ones, one of those massive ones that if you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard it over and over again. And which one was that? That was Paul's, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's such a massive statement, isn't it? It's so massive, so, so, so heavy. And Paul was able to say that, remember, because for him, what we saw a few weeks ago was that good, according to Paul, was anything that advanced the gospel. And so Paul was able to say with this kind of confidence, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain, because that is what good was for Paul. And I think we can encounter, though, 
I think we can encounter an incredible statement like that and we can just be like, listen, like I get that that's Paul, but that's just not me right now. I, 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 I identify, I wanna believe that statement with all my heart, but for, for to me right now, to live is, is what? It's my family. To me right now, to live is my job. Maybe, maybe for you, to live is just those two hours you get at the end of every day on your couch to scroll on your phone. That's what it's all about. And we can encounter a statement like that and we can grow discouraged because this idea of living a life like Paul lives before us just seems like an impossibility. It seems like practically unattainable. But what we have to remember here, church, is that Paul didn't get there overnight, right? Paul isn't writing this letter at the beginning of his life. He's writing this letter at the end of his life, after a long life lived under apprenticeship to his rabbi, Jesus, okay? Through ups and downs and, and seasons of flourishing where he was free and moving about the Roman Empire and preaching the gospel and seeing lives changed and planting churches, but then also seasons where he was being persecuted, seasons where he was imprisoned, he learned this over a long course of his life. And so if you find yourself wondering, as we're journeying through Philippians, wondering and worrying right now, how can I ever get to where Paul was? Or will I ever really be able to truly say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain? Can I reassure you real quick? Can I just offer you some hope real quick? You will get there. You will get there. I am confident that you will get there. And you know why I'm confident that you will get there? Because God's word says we will get there. For I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For the faithful follower of Jesus Christ, deep, resilient joy isn't just possible, it's not just probable, it's a promise, okay? It's a promise. Now listen, I get though that as we navigate through this life, it can be hard, it can be so difficult to hold on to that promise. It seems like it's unattainable. It seems like an impossibility that we'll ever experience this kind of joy. And to make matters worse, we live in a world that, that has this buffet of options on offer for us to pursue after other things, to pursue after fake joy. And listen, one of the primary ways, one of the main ways that we are lured away from our pursuit of resilient joy is, is by pursuing what I'm gonna call this morning status. Status. Defined as our position or rank in relation to others or our relative rank in a hierarchy of prestige. For many of us, if not most of us in this room, whether we recognize it or not, this is where we turn to to secure our joy. It's in status. There's this book that I read recently by this guy named W. David Marks, and he has no relation to Karl Marx, for any of you that, that might kind of scare in the moment. Completely unrelated, all right? He wrote in this book called um, Status and Culture, he wrote this. For both the privileged and underprivileged, there is a nearly universal desire to secure a comfortable social position. Status seeking is obvious among insufferable snobs, petty civil servants, and Porsche-driving hedge fund managers. But neither capitalism nor complex bureaucracies are necessary to stoke such 
ambitions. And then he goes on and he writes this. In the New Guinea Highlands, where sea snail shells served, try saying that four times fast. I practiced that so many times and I nailed it. I nailed it, okay? Thank you. Where sea snail shells served as currency and men competed in the accumulation of livestock, powerful big men like myself, openly acknowledged that status symbols ruled everything around them. And for one, they quote, all I care for in my life are my pigs, my wives, my shell money, and my sweet potatoes. Which of us have not said that before, right? <laughs> right? And then he finishes up by writing this. A growing body of empirical research concludes that status, listen, is a fundamental human desire. Normal status is nice, but long-term happiness requires a sense of higher status. And whether we recognize it or not, so much of what we do is motivated by this desire to seek and secure a higher sense of status. The job you have, the position, the money you make, the car you drive, the clothes you wear, the vacations you take, all in pursuit of this sense of higher status. And you might say to me right now, no, no, but have you seen the clothes I wear? <laughs> Do you see the piece of junk I drive to, to, to church today? Uh, listen, I haven't taken an Instagrammable vacation ever. Like, my in-law's place is not that nice, okay? But, 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 but ask yourself, though, do you find yourself wanting those things to change? Do you find yourself wanting to have nicer clothes or be able to take a nicer vacation or drive a nicer car? Do you find yourself longing for a higher sense of, of, of status? The sense of security that we gain from a higher sense of status, even seeking and desiring that in our hearts, listen, they are both equally insidious and poison for our souls this seeking of status. To seek and secure uh, joy through status, listen, is a surefire way. This is the path you take. It is a surefire way to prevent yourself from experiencing resilient joy. It is, to quote Jesus, to lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. And it might be our natural desire, but listen, it is antithetical to the way of the kingdom of God. It has no place amongst the people of God. And to make matters worse, listen, status by its very nature is a zero-sum game. Do you know what that means? It is a zero-sum game. Here's what that means. It means that because of its inherent hierarchy-based system, for it to actually mean anything, there have to be winners and there have to be losers. For higher status to mean anything, there have to be losers with lower status. Does, does that start to make some sense? And so where that exists, when people, when the people of God especially participate in something like that, it is naturally going to create strife and disunity and problems and angst. Again, all things that are antithetical to the way of a people seeking to live under the rule and reign of King Jesus. These are all things that are going to prevent us as individuals and as a people of God from experiencing authentic, resilient joy. But thankfully, listen, here's the good news now, okay? Thankfully, God has something better on offer. 
And we see this in Philippians 2. Let's look there right now. Philippians 2, verse 1, Paul writes this. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, then complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in spirit, having one purpose, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be motivated to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. Let's stop right there for the moment. The first thing I want to draw our attention to is that in these first four verses in the original language, this is actually one long, run-on, complex sentence. These first four verses. This is actually the longest sentence in the New Testament. 82 words. And what our translations mask, if you're reading in a copy of God's word that's in English, typically they break it down into three separate sentences. But what our translations mask is that there is only one main verb and one um, command in this whole sentence. A right smack dab in the middle in verse two where Paul writes this. Complete my joy and be of the same mind. You have the command you have the imperative and you have the verb. Everything else around that verb is what's called a supporting participle, okay? That's what that's called. That's the grammar nerd stuff right there. And so Paul's main command here in Philippians then is simply this. Complete, or your translation might read fulfill or fill up my joy. Fill it up so that it's overflowing. This is a word picture here. Remember, Paul uses some form of the word joy 16 times in this short little letter. And Paul, he already has so much joy. So much joy. Right at the very beginning, Philippians 1, verse 4. In all my prayers, I pray with joy. He has this joy. Chapter 1, verse 18. Because of this, I rejoice. And now fill it up to overflowing. Complete my joy. And in verse 1, Paul shares the why behind why he wants God's people to fill up his joy. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the spirit, any affection or mercy. Now listen, here's what Paul isn't doing here. He isn't calling these things into question, all right? He isn't saying like, if these things are there, like if they happen to be there, then do this. No, what Paul is doing, think about it like this. Switch it up and imagine that Paul is actually asking us some questions about our experience in God's kingdom. Look at how it reads then. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Well, well, yes, there is encouragement in Christ. Is there any comfort in love? Totally, totally. Is there fellowship in the spirit? Yes, how about affection and mercy? Are those present? Yes, those are there. And so Paul's understanding here is that since all of these things are present, then complete my joy and be of the same mind. Paul's idea here isn't to draw these things into question. His idea here is to reassure us and remind us about the reality that we all experience when we say yes to Jesus and step into his life in his kingdom. He's reminding us of these things, the gifts that we have. We receive encouragement and comfort and fellowship and mercy. And so since all of those things are true, Paul then says, complete my joy. And then he moves on to the how. 
How do we complete the joy? He says this, be of the same mind. Church, be of the same mind. In, in the Greek, that's auta phrenete, or most literally translated, that you might be same-minded. That we might be same-minded. Now, now here's, this is like a Greek idiom here, and what Paul isn't saying is that we would all think the exact same thoughts about everything that we would all have the same thoughts on every single doctrinal matter, that we would all think the same on eschatology and, and creation and predestination. No, there's freedom in those things. The idea here is that we would all be on the same page, that we would all have the same frame of mind, that we would all be focused as a people, that we would all be focused on the exact same thing. And what is that thing? Well, we'll get there in just a moment, but before that, Paul then gives us some more detailed instruction on how to go about doing it. We get into that run-on sentence, these are all the participles. He says this, he says, be like-minded, we see seven different things here. By having the same love, by being united in spirit, by having one purpose, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should five in humility, be motivated to treat one another as more important than yourself, Six, each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but seven, also about the interests of others as well. And so here, here's what we are called to as a people. We are called to be united with and seek the benefit of, listen church, we are called to seek the status of others, right? We are called to seek the well-being and welfare of others others, and at the heart of these examples, do you know what we find? We, we, we find the greatest of Christian virtues, the engine for Christ-likeness, and that is this idea of humility. Humility. In humility, be moved to treat others as more important than yourself. Super easy, right? Something we do all the time. In humility, you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You see, listen, Paul wants us to be together. He wants us to be unified, and the way we achieve this is through humility. The foundation of unity is humility. That's the foundation of unity. It's humility. And so as we move forward as a church, this isn't just an individual journey, this is as a church, we are seeking an otherworldly unity that transcends every earthly boundary, that transcends age and gender and race and politics and socioeconomic status. That is something that can only be achieved through the power of Jesus and it can only happen when we are humble. But remember, we can't disconnect this passage from what we've seen in context. And what did Paul call us to? Maybe, maybe you can remember. What did Paul call us to at the very end of chapter one? Paul called us at the end of chapter one to live as citizens of the gospel of the king. And then at the beginning of chapter two, he says, therefore, right? That's the connection right there. That's the connection, and what he's saying is because you're citizens of the gospel of the king, listen, be like-minded. Would our focus be on the gospel and Jesus Christ? That is how we achieve unity. Listen, unity isn't for unity's sake. We achieve unity by fixing our minds on Jesus Christ collectively. And so while the foundation of unity is humility, 
the focus for our unity is the good news of Jesus. That is the focus of our unity, is the good news of Jesus. You see, unity isn't an end in itself. Unity is not an end in itself. Surface unity is actually really easy to manufacture. Terrorist groups have unity. Criminals have unity, right? Unity is simply a means to the end. The end is the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must stay unified around that. We must stay unified around that. Because when our church unifies around preferences, around a personality, around a venue, around a demographic, if that's what our church finds unity around, then it's only a matter of time until this church falls to pieces. If Arbor is gonna be a church that stands the test of time, then we must be unified around the good news of Jesus Christ, amen? Amen. This is what God calls us to. When we strive to keep King Jesus and his gospel of his kingdom front and center, But listen, we can't do that without humility. Again, humility is the foundation of all of this. How else are we gonna lay aside our preferences if we do not have humble hearts? What's so interesting about humility, though, is that back in Paul's day, humility was not seen as a virtue. Humility was not seen as something that people actually desired. Slaves were considered humble. Lower class poor people were considered humble and that wasn't a good thing. Princes, rulers, the wealthy, they were not considered humble and that was considered a virtue. Listen, in fact, about 30 years ago, there was this guy, his name is William J. Bennett and he wrote this book called The Book of Virtues and in this book, he has a collection of hundreds of stories and sayings about the different classical virtues, courage, responsibility, patience, friendship, all of these different things but if you go to the table of contents, do you know what one virtue is missing there? Can you guess? Humility. Humility. Yeah, because it wasn't considered a virtue to voluntarily cultivate humility in yourself back then was social suicide. It would have been seen as a, an act of self-sabotage to pursue humility in that society. And listen, I don't think much has changed. I don't think much has changed in our human hearts. And listen, don't confuse being polite and being nice for being humble. We might live in a society that has a veneer of politeness and niceness, and that's kind of falling away for sure right now. But listen, don't confuse that for humility. What kind of posture did Paul take upon himself? He took upon the posture of a slave. He self-identified with the lowest possible status. Why? because he sought to place others' interests in front of his own. He sought to serve others for the sake of Jesus and and the advancement of the gospel. It would have been totally countercultural in Paul's day. And I think it's still extremely countercultural in our day and age as well, when we are totally preoccupied with seeking and securing a higher status for ourselves. Listen, as as a people of Jesus Christ, we are called to something different. We are called to be humble. We're called to seek humility. So that begs the question then, what is humility? What is humility? Listen, so humility, humility is not simply thinking that you're a pile of garbage, okay? 
It's not simply thinking, oh, I'm the worst and I'm terrible and I'm so awful and everyone else is better than me. That's not humility. You know what that actually is? That's pride. That's a twisted version of pride. Humility, I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. He put it this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's so good, right? We should just let Clive Staples preach this, right? Like, let him take, take it from here. That was his actual name. That's what CS stands for, Clive Staples, just in case you were wondering. A little, little fun fact for you this Sunday morning. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Another way of understanding this is that pride is like a mirror and humility is like a window, okay? Pride is like a mirror. Humility is like a window. And when you look out into the world, when you're looking at it from a heart of pride, all you see is a mirror. All you see is yourself. And for some of us, we look in that mirror and we're like, wow, looking pretty good. All right. That's my good side, right? That's my good side. Wow, both are my good side. That's <laughs> incredible, right? That's some of us, right? But some of us, we look in that mirror and we think to ourselves, we're like, I'm, I'm the worst. Why am I the way that I am, you know? I'm so awful. Again, listen, that, that, that's just another twisted version of pride, that form of insecurity, and that's what pride is. Pride is like a, a mirror, but humility is like a window, and you look out into the world, and you can't help but see others and their needs, and, and, and you get lost in the best sense of the word. You get lost in trying to meet others' needs and placing their interest in front of your own and receiving other people in your lives as the gift from God that they are. That is what humility is like. And unless we do work in our lives to cultivate this sense of humility, like Jesus, like Paul, we see here, where our hearts are humble and we're able to put others' needs in front of our own, you see, listen, we will be overcome with pride. And let me tell you that nine times out of ten, where pride is present in the human heart, there is strife and there is envy and there is fighting and there is disunity. We see this all over the scriptures that unity is impossible when our hearts are rooted in pride. We see this in James 3. He writes, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, he should show his works done in the gentleness that wisdom brings. Now listen, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy, and selfishness in your hearts. Do not boast and tell lies against the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but it is earthly, it is natural, it is demonic. For where there is jealousy and selfish and status-seeking, there is disorder and every evil practice. And do you know what's, what's nowhere to be found in this picture? Joy. There's no joy there. Joy is nowhere to be found. Week one, we were given a couple of questions to be asking ourselves on this journey toward resilient joy. And do you remember what one of those questions was? What is my posture? What is my posture? We have to seriously ask ourselves, am I pursuing a posture of humility or a posture of pride in my life? And listen, this is so important because the posture of humility enables us to experience resilient joy. The posture of humility enables us to experience real, lasting, godly, supernatural joy. Paul then goes on in verse five and he writes this. 
He says, you should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. And what we're gonna read next is one of the most beautiful, rich, theologically dense sections of scripture. It's incredible, it's beautiful. It's, it's this poem about, about Jesus Christ. But listen, what we can't lose in the mix is verse five, okay? While this poem that we're about to read is most definitely a picture of who our God is, listen, it is also very much about us. It's about the way we are to operate. It's about the way God wants our minds to work. It's about the way we are to think about ourselves in position to others around us. And so as we read this beautiful poem, would we remind ourselves in the back of our mind that this is also about how we are to relate to other people. Listen, theology is not done in a vacuum. Good theology has its roots in our lives lived out in reality, okay? So now listen, verse six. I'm gonna read through this slowly. Jesus who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Listen, there is so much in those six verses that we could just spend hours and hours unpacking and that's what we're gonna do now. You are here till 3 p.m. We are just gonna do a deep dive and I'm just kidding. There's so much there, but listen, I'm just gonna highlight two important things that I want us to walk away with from those verses here at the very end. And the first thing is this. This poem is a picture of what our God is like. Church, we have gathered together to worship God. And this poem is a picture of what our God God is like, and here's what I mean. When you look at Jesus, you see God. When we fix our eyes upon Jesus, we see God. The disciples, as they spent time with Jesus, they were like, would you show us the Father? Would you show us the Father? And like so many times, like so many times, Jesus is like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you look upon me, you see the Father. I love the way that N.T. Wright puts it. He writes this. The decision to become human and to go all the way along the road of obedience, obedience to the divine plan of salvation, yes, all the way to the cross. Listen, this decision was not a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really meant to be divine. His progression through incarnation to death must be, not, must be seen not as something which required him to stop being God for a while, but listen, but listen, but as the perfect self-expression of the true God, would we wrap our minds around that? Like this is Jesus, when he became man, he did not lay aside divinity. He was fully God and fully man the entire time. He didn't just say time out for a little bit, enter earth, and then was reinstated into the Godhead again. That's not how it worked. No, listen, because, right? That's so important right there. Because God is Jesus, he became human. It's part of who God is. 
because God is Jesus, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death, death on a shameful, awful cross. So, so, so Jesus himself, read the Gospels, soak in the Gospels. As we encounter Jesus in the Gospels, that is the perfect self-expression of who our God is. And so are we saying our God is a servant? Yes. Are we saying that our God is humble? Yes. You see, so many people in our day and age struggle to really believe that Jesus is God. And we can read the Gospels and encounter Jesus in the Gospels and we can think, man, he was a brilliant man. Man, he was so kind and humble and patient and loving and, and he might have even had a spark of the divine but we struggle to really believe that Jesus is God. You know that in Paul's time, the majority problem was that they had a hard time believing that Jesus was actually human? But you see, we have this like high-level philosophical concept of what God is like, and we try to fit Jesus into that box, when in reality, the New Testament approaches it in the exact opposite direction. It says, do you want to know what God is like? Then look at Jesus. Learn from him. Understand him. Watch him and see what he's like. Jesus himself, as he walked this earth, he referred to himself, he called himself, I am. That's like the highest Jewish, most divine name for the most holy God. That's what Jesus called himself. And so listen, we have to adjust our perspective and stop trying to kind of fit Jesus in our God box and understand that God is Jesus. Jesus is the perfect self-expression of God, that if we really want to know the God that we worship, all we have to do is look at Jesus, and yes, he is strong, and he is righteous, and he is holy, and he is perfect, but, but, but listen, he is also compassionate, and he is kind, and he is patient, and he is humble. Man, is he humble. What we can deduce from all of this is that our God is unlike any other God. Our God is not a power-hungry tyrant. Our God is Jesus, and he is worthy of all worship. Every knee will bow in the heavens and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. This Jesus who emptied himself, who poured himself out, who humbled himself for our sake. So first of all, this poem is a picture of, of what our God is like, but second, again, we cannot forget, do not neglect verse five. This poem is also about us. This poem is also about us as a people in our relationships with one another. This is the mind that we are called to have toward each other. Our God, Jesus, he is the paradigm that we are to follow. We are to follow him. We are to mimic him. We are to copy him. We are to try to do exactly what he did. Isn't this how kids learn things, right? This is how kids learn. They mimic and copy and, and follow their parents around and they try to do everything mom or dad does, right? Like I remember our youngest Eleanor at one point in time, I can't remember where we were, but she did that thing where she puts on mom's high heel shoes and tries to come out and she kind of copies mom's mannerisms, you know, and tries trying to talk like mom and all that kind of stuff, right? Like it can be really sweet and adorable, but what we have to remember is that we are children of God. That's who we are. 
We're children of God and we are called to follow him around and copy him and mimic him. And as difficult as that might be at times for us as fallen, broken people, we have to remember that our God is Jesus and he is looking down upon us and he is smiling as we continue to move along and cultivate humility in our hearts. Listen, these verses right here, verses six through 11, are not just meant to be some sort of high-level Christology or high-level theology, although they most certainly are those things. Listen, theology, when it happens rightly, it happens in the flesh and blood of life. These verses are meant to be the way our minds are among one another. We are to value others above ourselves. We are to value others above ourselves. We are to put others' interests in front of our own because that's what Jesus did. He did that perfectly. We are not to be vain or or have any empty conceit. We are not to imbibe the values of this world that says if you seek and secure a higher sense of status, you are actually going to experience real and lasting joy. No, because Jesus didn't do that. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not exploit his own divinity. He did not use that to his own advantage. In fact, he did the exact opposite. He emptied himself, he poured himself, out and he gave himself as a ransom for many. We are to have this mindset among us. This is what it looks like. This is how we are to live. It's supposed to look different. It's supposed to be hard. This is the way of the cross. This is the way Jesus has called us to. Yes, it's about Jesus, but it's also about us. This passage is about the way we treat others, even that person that drives you up the wall. How would Jesus treat that person? He'd pour himself out. He'd empty himself for that person, and he did obediently to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so what would it look like in your life to take up that pattern, that cross-shaped pattern in your life What would it look like to live your life if Jesus was actually living your life? It would look like humility. It would look like humility. And so in just a moment, the band's gonna come up and they're gonna sing a song, but but they're gonna sing that over us. Instead of singing, here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like us to spend that song reflecting upon what we've just read in this passage and what we've just heard. Would we ask ourselves some questions before God? Would we ask ourselves, what would it look like if I followed this pattern in my life? Would we ask ourselves, where where am I falling short in following this pattern in my life? Is there pride in my life that I need to repent of? Have I been spending my life seeking my own status or am I spending it in pursuit of others, putting their interests above my own. Let's reflect on those questions, but let's not stay there the whole song, okay? Let's also spend some of this time in gratitude to Jesus, who not only did he pay the penalty for our sins, but listen, by the power of his spirit, he enables us to live in a way where our lives are more and more being formed by his cross and cultivated in the goodness of humility. 
Would we spend time in gratitude? Listen, he, he, he can, through the power of his spirit, cultivate our lives where instead of looking out at the world and seeing a mirror, we see a window. Instead of seeing our own needs, we see the needs of others, a life that is cultivated in that greatest of virtues, humility. And that is so important for us in this journey to joy because it is the very thing that enables us to experience real, lasting, resilient joy. And then when you're ready, as the song is still playing, I'd like us to kind of move to the sides. We have communion set up, and we're gonna take communion today, but we're gonna do it a little bit differently today. Instead of kind of taking it on our own, I'd, I'd like us to move to the sides during this next song after we've spent some time reflecting and, and grab the cup, grab the bread, and at the end of the next song, I want us to take communion together as a family, okay? So would you join me in prayer? The band can go ahead and come on up. Father God, we, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for Jesus. Father God, would you help us to fall more and more in love with your son? Help us to fix our eyes upon him. Help us to gaze upon him. Lord God, we, we can get so easily sidetracked in pursuit of our own gain, our own status, Lord, but would you forgive us of that? Lord, those are empty promises that we're pursuing and they never deliver. They never deliver, Lord God. And so I pray right now that as, as, a, as a body, God, that we would move toward you, Jesus. And that as we do that, not only would we begin to experience real unity, God, but would we also experience joy as we seek to have this mind among ourselves, the mind of Jesus Christ, who humbled himself in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, as we approach your table, and as we reflect on who we are, who we've been becoming, God, we pray, Lord, that we would experience your grace and your mercy, and would you propel us from this place toward greater Christ-likeness. Well, repentance is not simply a thing to be sad about, God. It's, it's joy, it's, it's changing our mind, it's turning around from where we were going and, and, and venturing back toward you, God. All of life is a life of repentance. And so, Lord God, would you bring great joy into this room as we lay down these lesser pursuits in pursuit of a greater pursuit, you, Jesus, and your gospel and your kingdom. Would you be glorified in this place, God? Would this be a place on earth as it is in heaven and under the earth where your name is praised, where every tongue would confess, Lord Jesus, that you are God above all. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.